This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week we talk to the prime movers of a new news startup that's not yet underway, but which popped up online this week, offering the prospect of six-figure salaries for senior staff in the regions. So how will that work, and what might it offer the regions and the nation? That's coming up later. And last week it was flying pizza, and this week airborne snacks were back in the headlines again. Uh, look, I think there is fairly strong opinions about in-flight snacks. But are we as excited as our media about our national carrier's in-flight fodder? But before all that, we look at RNZ's big boost in funding that was announced recently after the plan for a public media entity four years in the making burned up on that bread-and-butter policy bonfire. And what else in broadcasting public media remains in play? Thank you, Mr Speaker. To the Minister for Broadcasting and Media, what announcements has he made regarding funding for world-class public media? Uh, the Honourable Willie Speaker. Jackson. Mr Speaker, today I've announced that we're delivering a, a funding boost to deliver world-class public media for all New Zealanders. That was Labour MP Naisi Chen with a powder puff of a patsy question in Parliament for her government's broadcasting and media minister, Willie Jackson. But back on the 6th of April, it was a query the minister was only too happy to answer. Radio New Zealand will receive a 60% increase, Mr Speaker. Of $25.7 million annually, this funding will help it meet competing demands and deliver world-class public media for all of Aotearoa. That funding boost was big for RNZ's bottom line for sure, but it was also billed as a saving by the government that same day because this was a backstop for the collapse of the government's new public media entity plan, which would have had a much bigger bill. And Newsroom's co-editor Mark Jennings, formerly a long-serving TV3 News chief, reckoned that the much-repeated world-class public media Willie Jackson spoke of there seemed an optimistic outcome if you took the government's previous words literally when he wrote this. Until weeks ago, the future of Aotearoa New Zealand's public media organisations was looking so grim, the government was prepared to spend $370 million over four years to merge TVNZ and RNZ. But while what Willie Jackson announced on April the 6th was effectively a pre-budget announcement concerning RNZ, with a one-off boost of $10 million for the broadcasting funding agency New Zealand On Air thrown in as well, Willie Jackson and Cabinet have much more on their minds. When Willie Jackson told reporters there would be a big announcement the day before the big reveal, he also told reporters he was working on a broadcasting strategy for all New Zealanders. And after the announcement back on April the 6th, he faced non-powder puff questions about that from his opposition counterpart in Parliament, Melissa Lee. And Willie Jackson's rebuttal made plain just how much needs to be done, if only legislatively, late in Labour's second term. RNZ Charter Review, the ANZ PM bill included a new charter designed for a modern fit for a purpose national public media entity. We'll use that good work to update and strengthen our RNZ Charter. And Mr Speaker, my officials are looking to modernise our outdated Broadcasting Act legislation that the useless National Party put in place. And even aside from all that, there's also the matter of what now for state-owned TVNZ, which is now not only not being merged with RNZ, but is also looking for a new chief executive to replace the current one who's leaving in June. And several new board members are needed urgently also to oversee whatever the new direction is, if any. Because the minister has hinted it won't be highly commercial business as usual for TVNZ. On the day he announced the new funding for RNZ, RNZ's midday news host Charlotte Cook asked Willie Jackson if TVNZ's future has been aired by the Cabinet. 
we're exploring ways TVNZ can play a more active public broadcaster role. Um, and, and, and we might be able to do this in terms of their charter, uh, maybe looking at a charter or in strengthening and monitoring uh, their, their, their reporting requirements. So, so you know, um, for us, um, you know, they're, they're in a very, very important part of the uh, jigsaw puzzle or the ecosystems. The previous TVNZ charter was introduced by a Labour-led government in 2002 and then scrapped by an incoming national-led government less than 10 years later. Now, some commentators have claimed recently that the current minister is now pursuing the goals of the public media merger by other means, like leaning on TVNZ. And in what was MediaWatch's first opportunity to talk to the minister since the big announcement earlier this month, Hayden Donnell asked Willie Jackson about that. But first, what does Willie Jackson and what should RNZ's audience expect from the RNZ funding boost he announced recently? And would that actually include a new digital platform, as the official announcement seems to suggest? Kia ora, Minister Jackson. Welcome to Media Watch. Kia ora. Good to uh, have a bit of a coordinator with you today. So the $25 million funding announcement for RNZ included $12 million for a new digital platform. So do you actually expect RNZ to create an entirely new brand or service there? Not at all. I think there was some crosswire with my officials there that shouldn't have actually gone out that way. I I know that I've spoken with um, RNZ and my officials have spoken with them and uh, what I do expect is that they will work on the existing service. And, and the other side of it, it's really up to RNZ. It's not for us to, to say what has to happen. RNZ is uh, independent from government and will make its own operational uh, decisions. But I would imagine that they will work on what's going to happen in terms of the, the current digital uh, infrastructure uh, and upgrade things in terms of the websites, in terms of the apps. And I'm looking forward to see what RNZ comes up with. In February 2020, we did propose this new youth service, and Dr. Jim Mather said, you know, this youth service would explore civic and financial lifestyle and well-being issues for youth. I wonder whether some of that $25 million will go towards a youth service. Again, it's up to RNZ. It's not for me to um, tell them where it should go, but, uh, you know, in our general corridor, we've talked about youth, we've talked about uh, Māori, we've talked about Pacifica, you know, underserved uh, audiences. And, and I think that that uh, extra $12 million will really help National Radio RNZ to find those audiences again, you know, our regional audiences. National Radio has been hampered and restricted in terms of, you know, getting to those audiences. In my quarter with the RNZ, they actually haven't talked about a, a new digital website. They talked about upgrading things and building on what was already there. Yeah, so just to clarify, you're not saying you must build a new youth service, uh, but you are hoping that RNZ, with the new money, will be reaching out to some of those underserved audiences, so like young people. Absolutely. But it's, again, not for me to tell RNZ what to do. You know, I think it's no secret that, you know, I have talked with them about young people. I've talked to them about Māori. I've talked to them about Pacifica. I've talked to them about the regions. And this will help. And RNZ has told me they want to develop a new audience experiences by delivering more news and content. Yeah, so you, you're mentioning that you've you've talked a bit to RNZ ahead of this funding announcement. Did they actually, or RNZ, provide a budget or a wish list of sorts for the additional funding? They've been very clear how limited and how restrictive the funding has been. So uh, I haven't 
spoken with them all the time, but my officials have come back to me with what their wants were. Did they give some numbers to officials? Well, they worked through that. All I knew is that if we really wanted to make an impact, you know, we had to make that and give a significant fund across to Radio New Zealand. I think in the end, a 60% boost was probably even a surprise to maybe people like yourself. Can we talk about some underserved communities? Can we talk about Māori and Pacifica communities? Because what additional Māori and Pacifica content do you actually hope for out of the new funding? Uh, again, it's going to be very much um, up to RNZ, but obviously I would like to see more Māori and Pacifica uh, programming and news. Uh, that's something that uh, has been acknowledged from National Radio. On, on top of that, we've got an extra $10 million built in with uh, New Zealand On Air, who are tasked with also, you know, finding those audiences uh, in terms of Māori and Pacifica. And the other side of it is, uh, you know, I do have a Māori media strategy that I've uh, overseen, and we gave $40 million to that strategy. So, you know, if we can complement what we're doing in a Māori sense, what we're doing in a Pacifica sense, I think that that'll be, for communities, I think it'll be great for RNG. I have been, well, you, you, you know my background, I came from the Māori broadcasting area. You know, in earlier years I had been a critic of national radio in terms yeah. of how, they, how they've addressed... Can uh, we talk about uh, that a little uh, bit? Uh, no, so, no, no, no problem, no problem. Back when you were a commentator, not a politician, you said that you're more likely to hear a bird than a Māori on RNZ, and <laughs> things have changed a little bit since then, but there's still no Māori presenter on any of this station's five top shows. Uh, we've just lost Māori Dunlop, a really prominent Māori broadcaster. Do you think that RNZ is still too reluctant to put Māori in these front-rank presenting roles? Oh, I think RNZ is trying. That's, what I, that's all I ask is for RNZ to, to try. I don't resolve from that. I don't regret anything I did before because um, uh, I just want that to me- lead to meaningful change. And after all that uh, criticism, I signed an MOU with the RNZ when I was uh, uh, involved in, in broadcasting before. And, and I've seen the, uh, some of the changes. People are speaking Māori on um, RNZ, which is terrific. I know for a fact there's been serious approaches to... Uh, different Māori broadcasters. Some of those broadcasters, for some unknown reason, haven't taken up the the opportunity. So I would only ask that a major effort be made by RNZ. I'm comfortable with that. Um, some people could say, well, you'd be, you're a bit hypocritical now. You're the minister. You've got a different view. Yes, you, you criticise, but are you prepared to get your hands dirty and, and work with uh, the, the, you know, roll your sleeves up and work with organisations. And I'm happy to advance RNZ's agenda because I can see the effort going in. Um, you know, we don't have Māori in those prime time positions, but I don't think it's because of a, a lack of effort from Radio New Zealand management in terms of trying to find the right people. Now, whatever effort has gone in, though, I mean, you told Newsroom recently, it is vital that all New Zealanders are seeing and hearing themselves in our public media. Now, when you look at RNZ's roster, its lineup of programmes, is everybody hearing and seeing themselves in our public media currently? Particularly, are they hearing and seeing themselves on RNZ? Even your um, senior management would probably admit there's some way to go. We need more army um, voices, and uh, I'm pleased with the effort. But, um, you know, people still making big contributions to RNZ. You've got Julian Wilcox there. 
Māori sadly has just left, but it's a long process and I'm looking forward to more Māori voices coming through over the next couple of years. I know that your CEO is making an effort and I hope that effort continues. I saw Mihi Ngārangi Forbes, uh, she suggested that some of the investment uh, in RNZ might be p- perhaps better redistributed to some of the 21 iwi radio stations that are sometimes the only voice on offer in a crisis. Now, do you have some sympathy for that view? Um, that view is born from giving up on, on RNZ making uh, a rollout, rollout change. In terms of the iwi stations, they've received more support and funding from me than any other, um, uh, well, ever. You know, they've had the biggest increases ever. I know um, Iwi uh, Radio history backwards, having been the chair for nine years. I was the chair of the 21 Māori stations. Most of them are sufficiently funded at the moment. They will say otherwise, but I know the needs uh, out there and obligations. So though they will scream um, poverty every time, I think their needs are, are looked after. Uh, have have Māori been underfunded? Uh, Do you really think, though, that RNZ is going to find these audiences? It doesn't have a great track record of reaching youth. It doesn't have a great track record of uh, reaching Māori in regional areas. Uh, do you trust it to find these audiences? I, I trust that there will be an effort made. Um, I'm sure we'll find out over the next couple of years if that's going to be the case, but... The other reality that we got and we found out during the, you know, the ANZPM um, process, you know, you, there's going to have to be a high level of collaboration. If there is no collaborative approach with Iwi Radio, with Fakata Māori, then you won't hit those audiences. That, you know, we have seen that in past years. You know, I was involved in Mana Māori Media in the 90s when we were um, doing Mana, Mana News in terms of national radio. I ran the Watian News uh, on national radio. Does this, does this to... clash a little bit, though, with you were saying that some of this budget doesn't really need to go to these iwi radio stations? Because I guess what you're proposing here is that RNZ really does need to collaborate with the iwi radio stations to make sure that it reaches the right audiences. There's two sources of funding here. You know, we, we have to look after our iwi radio stations in terms of our commitment to the te reo Māori, but also for them to flourish they need to be given opportunities. RNZ can present those opportunities by showcasing some of the stories that are happening, that is happening at Iwi Radio level. It's not about... You can't just give up and say, well, you, 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 you Maoris, you go and do that thing and we'll do this thing. There's got to be a time when we come together and, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. And- Moving on. Is this money enough to ensure RNZ's sustainability? Because, I, I mean, when the merger was being sold to the public, I think Jacinda Ardern said RNZ was in danger of collapse. I remember your government said that this merger needed to happen because our current public media is just not going to be able to compete with the social media giants, the pace of technological change. Is just throwing $25 million at RNZ going to be enough? Um, I think it's enough for now. You know, we're in the middle of a cost-of-living uh, crisis. Expected, you're talking about a 60% funding increase here, but, you know, you've got... This is a tough world. We've got declining audiences, declining revenue. You've got competition everywhere in terms of the, the, the big digital players around the world. So I think it's enough to start off with. But, you know, if we're able to 
build on this because I see this as the first part of a broadcasting strategy uh, that will also see uh, me talking to TVNZ about the role they play as a public media entity. Um, I also want to have a look at the RNZ Charter, maybe put in the TVNZ Charter, uh, look at how we capitalise on the Māori media investment, looking at media content that has been jumped upon by the big companies and We've seen small and local regional media companies getting left out and the big players not coming to the table. So I want to roll out a non-wide news uh, bill. And on top of that, we're looking at the Broadcasting Act. And if I can pull those other parts together, we've got a sort of comprehensive and coordinated New Zealand broadcasting strategy. Well, there's a, there's a lot in there, but I mean, TVNZ once did have a charter. It didn't particularly go well and it was dropped. Are you looking at reintroducing one and has that been raised with TVNZ? We've mooted it, obviously. The Prime Minister talked about it. I've sort of talked about it. But I think, you know, if we're serious about a public media entity, we're going to have to have a look at the charter. You know, you know, you know we had a charter uh, in terms of the Aotearoa New Zealand public media uh, entity that we're going to look back at and see if we can incorporate some of some of that cope up, some of those initiatives, maybe in our RNZ one, not a huge uh, RNZ uh, um, charter review, but we will review it. And then we'll see, is it possible to maybe even look at a, a possible TVNZ charter? These are the things I want to roll out with TVNZ people. Obviously, we're looking also at the composition of the boards, RNZ, TVNZ. You know, my hope is that RNZ and TVNZ work closely together. That's my hope into the future, you know, and uh, some people think that's impossible. Well, that's what we're going to do with the merger. It would be good if we could bring uh, TVNZ, uh, you know, a bit closer to what, what RNZ does. And it's not about... Uh, obviously, there's going to have to be a commercial strategy in terms of T- TVNZ, but it's about getting the balance and reminding them that, that you know, they're an essential part of New Zealand as a public media entity. They're they're imperative in terms of our future uh, and working in tandem with RNZ would be really, really good. But it's not changing drastically what they're doing, but maybe just uh, looking at, you know, how they are looking at Māori, Pacific, Asian, disabled and youth audiences. How does that work in terms of their obligations? And I'm looking forward to those talks over the next uh, few weeks. You've mentioned to reporters in the past, you've mentioned it to me, you are preparing a broadcasting strategy for all New Zealanders. This extra RNZ funding fits within that. When can we expect just further public media policy announcements on that front? Well, I mean, there's uh, five and a half months to go to the election. We'll be doing uh, announcements over the, over the next couple of months. You know, we've got a budget coming up. To be look, I'm looking closely at working with Māori Media at the moment. Um, we'll have more news on our online news bill, which is important in terms of news media companies being paid fairly for their content that is used online by companies like Google and Facebook. So all those types of uh, announcements will be made over the next probably three months. Thank you very much, Minister. Kia ora. Thank you, mate. All Kia ora. Kia ora. That was the Broadcasting and Media Minister Willie Jackson talking there to Hayden Donnell. As you heard Willie Jackson say there, 
One of the government's hopes is that a bigger budget for RNZ will make RNZ national more truly national again. And that's a recognition of the fact that beyond its Auckland and Wellington headquarters and smaller bureau in Christchurch and Hamilton, RNZ News only has a presence in a handful of other places these days. Now, other mainstream media companies have also cut back in the regions over recent decades, which led to the creation of the publicly funded Local Democracy Reporting Scheme back in 2019. Now, this is run by RNZ, and it covers the cost of reporters in 14 places in local newsrooms around the country, which might otherwise struggle to employ journalists to cover significant local and civic issues. Since 2020, it's been funded through the Public Interest Journalism Fund, a three-year initiative which just this week announced its final grants of public money, and among them was funding for journalism jobs in Waikato, Marlborough, Bay of Plenty, Coromandel, Tairawhiti, Otago, and even some local Auckland communities. But with the Public Interest Journalism Fund now out of time and money, the long-term future of all these regional jobs isn't known. Well, this week, adverts appeared online seeking expressions of interest from reporters in regional New Zealand, but advertising the sorts of salaries that those in the big towns and cities might expect. Pay rates for senior journalists in the $90,000 to $120,000 range, while juniors, they say, will be paid $50,000 to $70,000, along with an employee share scheme, a company car and other benefits, and all that according to the ads for the new regional news network. Now if that name means nothing to you, well that's no surprise, the regional news network is a startup that's just now starting up, but which has plans to be based in 17 locations, with a senior and a junior journalist in each one, all backed up from a head office in Queenstown and a technical and sales staff headquarters in Auckland. Now, coincidentally, something similar but bigger kicked off in Australia in 2021, news.net.au, with this pitch to its potential clients. Over 1,300 news websites across Australia delivering a comprehensive coverage that no other media can compete with. One simple media buy where you can reach nearly every city coast to coast and everywhere in between. News.net is making a special offer to a limited number of international, national, state and local foundation advertisers who have the foresight to seize this great potential and rare opportunity. Now, Newsnet.au had some great people involved at the start and it hired others, but it didn't have enough backing or technical skills and resources to ever fully launch. Well, the business brain behind the new regional news network here is Tim Martin, the former founder of sports streaming services Rugby Pass and Coliseum, and more recently, but just briefly in 2022, the chief executive at the NBR. And the founder and chief editor of the proposed network is Peter Newport, formerly a journalist for several New Zealand news organisations, before he set up his own multimedia news service called Crux in Queenstown back in 2018 to cover news and issues in the Southern Lakes region. Crux has been an experiment to see if there's an appetite in a market for what you might call robust news. I think there's been a tendency all over the world for local news to become quite cautious in the sense that you can't bite the hand that feeds you. So in a local community, unlike a national media situation, and what tends to happen with community media and newspapers in particular, is they tend to adopt something of a community stance. So there isn't much holding of power to account When journalists start, the pay in the regions has been pretty poor, so they have the good ones migrate to the cities for for more pay. Crux has worked in the sense that we're now the biggest source of online news, but what we haven't achieved is economies of scale. 
It's only by networking the crux model that it's going to be sustainable so that journalists, to put it crudely, have more strength, uh, better paid, and they have more resources to keep going at these organisations that simply are not used to being held to account and being asked the tough question. And the 17 locations are designed to provide 17 hyper-local platforms like Crux, so nothing in Wellington, nothing in Auckland, nothing in Christchurch, but a senior journalist in each location on very high pay. That's important. Journalists have been underpaid for decades, so our model includes high pay for a senior journalist who, in effect, becomes an editor. They're not answerable to us. Uh, They are running their own publication. A junior journalist on around 60,000, which, again, is well above market, and a salesperson. So, broadly speaking, that hub... Uh, costs around $390,000, which is about as cheap, we think, as you can get a viable hyper-local news platform. All the technology, of course, is centralised. The sales are centralised. But those journalists will be producing 40 to 60 stories a day, some of which will only be of interest locally, some of which will be of interest nationally to other regions. Uh, But we think people who live in Wellington, Christchurch and Auckland will also be interested in reading those stories. Well, Tim, if I could turn to you. So you've got a track record of uh, online media entrepreneurship, let's put it that way. But things like, say, Coliseum or Rugby Pass, I mean, those are attractive areas uh, to elite sports uh, where you'd have a national audience to to try and, of course, you've got big competitors in those markets. But uh, this is a very different proposition, isn't it? Isn't this essentially something where established local media companies like the newspaper chains are struggling to keep going and to employ adequate journalists and do the coverage. I mean, what makes you think that doing this online, uh, you can do this with what Peter's describing, high pay, recruiting good good journalists and, and actually feeding a network of, of stories that will be nationally significant? I think news, I think that is a really uh, strong product in New Zealand. It's probably a stronger product than rugby uh, with more potential. It has Bigger than rugby. Big call in New Zealand to market. That's good. Yeah. You know, I think the right sort of news is. Um, it's certainly got a broader reach because if things aren't working, you know, private sector money is withdrawn, quality of journalism decreases, you're into a vicious spiral. Strong and independent journalism is a very, you know, it's a pillar of democracy. National or competing newspaper companies right now, let's call them newspaper companies, but online media operations as well, say NZME with papers in the North Island and then a national audience for its herald.co.nz, and that, of course, allied to all its radio properties and the other content from that. Then we've got Stuff, Mm -hmm. uh, I guess the biggest, by some distance, truly national, perhaps our only truly national news country with journalists Mm -hmm. up and down the entire country. Even RNZ can't really boast that, even though we're a national uh, journalism operation. Um, And so online, those two brands are huge. They've got massive audiences. Isn't it going to be difficult for a new network to to undercut that, particularly if they don't have a presence in the metropolitan areas where a lot of news obviously still come from? This isn't a home run hit, lay down, misere sort of play. There's work to be done. The key to it is uh, hyperlocal journalism is underserved in the regions. We've built a business model that looks to be sustainable financially, and that's really the critical element. Journalism can only you know, improve and be better funded and journalists can, can get paid more when you've got a sustainable business money. So you need a business that actually makes money. We can build a business that is complementary to the ones that exist. I don't see us as anything like competitors to NZME. 
I think they've got a business that they've done an amazing job turning around and really sort of taking forward uh, with some really clear strengths that are in other areas. So I think this is, there is a bit of a gap for this kind of product. If you think about New Zealand's economy, 90% of the products that we sell overseas, so 90% of our exports are from the regions. It's actually the regions that make all the money for New Zealand. You know, Auckland, Wellington and Christchurch, we're just big consumption centres. Just suck it all up. But, you know, we sell money, we sell tourism, you know, we sell apples, you know, we sell fish, we sell milk, we sell cheese. That's what New Zealand's economy is about. That's the regions. That's where those stories are happening. And I don't accept for a second regional news as anything but the most important news in the country. And Peter, if I turn to you, I know uh, you've been having meetings with uh, government politicians, opposition politicians, government departments and ministries that have relevant interest. How much depends upon their support and, you know, to be blunt, persuading the powers that be that the public purse needs to come into play here? Because as we know, in recent times, the government has acknowledged that the public media is more than just publicly owned media and uh, that the public purse has a role to play. Does this project depend upon that? Government funding of journalism became very controversial because of just the way PIGF was perceived, and I think that's caused extraordinary pain for the government. They're, they feel that they were misunderstood, and the, the, the impression we're getting is they're not going to do anything like PIGF again anytime soon. Uh, we're also looking at the wreckage of the merger. Um, we're recognising with government that the problems that the merger was designed to address are still there. Mm -hmm. They're not solved. Uh, We talked to Meta and we talked to Google and they themselves are quite distressed. You know, they've just, I think, recently announced another 10 or 12,000 redundancies. So I think the answer to your question is that uh, government need to do something to reassure the public public funding is there, but the public, because of PIGF, is suspicious of handouts and suspicious of strings being attached. So I think what this project um, provides for government is the opportunity to back journalism without those strings being attached. Are you putting to them a particular proposal that says, how about you kick in this much, we'll raise this much from commercial partners? Is that the nature of the pitch, that you actually want them to commit to providing some sort of guarantee of funding for some sort of term in order to get it off the ground? We're going first. We think private investment is is there. We think the five revenue streams are important. But there's a role to play for government. There's no doubt about that. It feels like we're pushing it at open door in the sense that everybody recognises that democracy depends on journalism. Government has a role to play. But it's avoiding those strings. It's avoiding those things that can be misconstrued by the public as being government interference. And so I think the model that we're still in talks about will avoid those issues. Okay, so the five revenue streams you talked about there. Yes. Okay. So advertising, uh, love it or hate it, Mm -hmm. we think it's likely that we'll continue to refuse to accept council advertising. Beyond that, uh, our model is for local salespeople to be selling local advertising. Um, We also have a national ability to uh, take national products like cars or banks to to the regions. Mm -hmm. Secondly, we think readers uh, do want to support journalism, but it's not big bucks. You know, public do want to help, but we can't rely on it. It's just one of five. Mm -hmm. Uh, We think that Meta and Google will have a role to play, but their position at the moment is that they're suffering. I don't think that's going to be an easy negotiation. It's going to be sort of down to the wire. But we do expect some progress. And, of course, Google's showcase product we're already part of. 
we actually think that there's room for us to share our content, looking at some revenue from the, our output being licensed to a national platform. In addition to that, we think there will be some government funding. And whatever uh, arrangement we come to in terms of supporting the launch of our platform, uh, we think will be part of the new day-to-day -day funding. It sounds like that may end up back with New Zealand On Air. So that's the way we see the chess pieces coming together at the moment. Okay. And Tim, is this uh, something that you will be actively uh, pitching to commercial clients in order to raise the capital to get this I think uh, so. I, yeah, I will. I, you know, we have to present a business case that delivers a good return on investment for any investor. But not, not as, say, sponsors as well or something like no, that? No, not as sponsors. <laughs> I think so. sustainability is fundamental, so it's around forever and can grow. You know, it needs to make money. I mean, that's the... That's the that's how we can, you know, pay and grow the journalism base in the country is, you know, profit. Uh, therefore, you know, money can be reinvested. So it will be an expensive operation. It so will these be. will have to be investors who are prepared to, I guess, not expect a return for a little bit of time, yeah, at least until things get so. in. No, something this is a long-term business play. This is, you know, we're not, This is there's no quick buck about this. This is a project that, won't go ahead without the funding. You know, if we cannot raise the money, this isn't the sort of project that you can bootstrap and roll out region by region. It's either a regional news network or it's nothing at all. Okay, so you wouldn't start with just five locations if not. you can't... Okay, all right. I don't think there's any other way to do it, to make it work. You know, you just can't slowly roll out a national network because you're not a national network. If you're not a national network, I don't think you've got a compelling proposition. Well, Peter, I hesitate to mention this in a way, but you mentioned earlier the government felt a little bruised about that public interest journalism fund and how that fed uh, that perception, or paranoia is another word, about corrupting the media as if public money hadn't been flowing into public media for decades and decades. But anyhow... Do you have to factor in at this point launching any kind of journalism service at this point that there is a kind of tide of a bit of cynicism or jaundice about the media? I don't think being a journalist has ever been easy. I think these are just a new set of older problems. Ever since journalism first emerged, journalists have been accused of being biased because, of course, if you don't agree with a journalist, you're going to call it bias because people have become armchair experts. They say, this isn't news. You know, it must be a quiet news day if you're covering this nonsense. We just say, well, we're not very interested in the public's opinion about the quality of our journalism because if you don't want to read our stuff, you go and read another media outlet. Yeah, you, you see that in the analytics for, <laughs> if you want, yeah. Um, so look, uh, the analytics are great. Um, so people do like what we're doing, but yeah, it's a tough time. It's a really tough time, but people love the truth. And if we as journalists work really hard and we don't blink and we just keep doing our job and we absolutely stick to our principles eventually the public will come on our side. And I, I have to say I'm encouraged through our meetings with both uh, the government and the opposition in the sense that they know that what I've just said is true, that good journalism is a fundamental part of democracy. So if you put aside all the arguments about the TVNZ-RNZ merger, all the arguments about Facebook, all the arguments about um, conspiracy theories, ultimately we need to know what's going on and we need to trust that source. 
And the biggest threat I think we have is from public relations and comms people. <laughs> we can't interview decision makers anymore. In terms of government, though, where is, is, or, or uh, an opposition that you've been speaking to, as you mentioned, I don't expect you to reveal uh, confidential uh, discussions or anything like that. But is their attitude broadly, sounds great, go ahead, you know, and yeah. come back to us when you've proved you can do it? Or are they really encouraging you and say, yes, we, no, we, we, we want to see this set up? Yeah, no, it's strong. Okay. And I think there's lots of reasons for that. I think the failure of the merger means that everybody's looking for something positive, somebody... somebody I've had a lot of government meetings throughout my career, but I've never seen such a receptive atmosphere, both with opposition and with government. So I think it's the right thing at the right time. And the regional news network, as Tim's explained, doesn't really threaten the incumbents. It solves a problem. And we need to start to get rid of all of those people out there in the regions who call themselves journalists, but who have no experience of journalism eating the advertising market by publishing media releases that aren't challenged. Mm -hmm. So if there was ever a time to rediscover proper journalism, now's that time. And, of course, because we've perfected this in Queenstown, those eight initial senior journalists will be spending a lot of time with us learning the systems and how we manage our day and how we choose the strong stories, how we manage the Local Government Meetings and Information Act, how we strike the balance between being tough journalists but also being friendly to the community. So we have a template. Yep. That was Peter Newport, the founder and editor of the online service Crux, based in Queenstown, and the founder of the new startup Regional News Network, a new service to be based in as many as 17 centres around the country. And we also heard there from the Regional News Network's business manager, Tim Martin. And finally, on Media Watch this weekend, last weekend we heard how one big brand fast food chain hit the headlines with stories about pizza delivered by drone being just around the corner. Seven years after a PR campaign by the same companies prompted the media to air the same claim a lot. And airborne junk food was back in the news again this week. Desperately seeking next-level snacks, Air New Zealand is refreshing its onboard menu for short hops right through to Long Haul International. Brace for the chips versus cookie debate and everything in between. That was Lisa Owen on Checkpoint last Monday, prompted by a media release from Air New Zealand. And what they called the Great Kiwi Snack Off would be open for expressions of interest until the 1st of May. But expressions of interest from the media last Monday were immediate. Uh, look, I think there is fairly strong opinions about in-flight snacks. We um, actually consume 15 million. Uh, yeah, people are, are pretty much, um, yeah, they like their snack. <laughs> what are you looking for in this, in this um, next round of snacks? Air New Zealand was, of course, looking for publicity. And Air New Zealand's Leanne Geraghty got almost five minutes of it on Checkpoint last Monday. She had already done more than six minutes on snacks on TVNZ's breakfast show earlier that day. Is launching a national campaign to find Kiwi's favourite snacks to showcase on board their flights. For more on the search, we're joined by Air New Zealand's Chief Customer Officer, Leanne Geraghty. And the same morning, another five minutes on News Talk ZB over a rather grotty phone line. But really, it's about just stepping things up a notch and being able to showcase some of the fabulous products that are made here in Aotearoa. Leanne Garrity, who is uh, Chief Customer and Sales Officer. News Hub's website was also interested the same morning with the headline, Air New Zealand could be about to ditch the in-flight cookie, while the Herald echoed the media release like this. 
Air New Zealand's customers can expect to enjoy a new and surprising in-flight menu aboard domestic and international flights by the end of the year. Though the story on stuff made it sound a lot less new and surprising. Air New Zealand is changing up its snacks again, it said, because it turned out that less than two years have passed since our national carrier last rotated its in-flight snacks. Nevertheless, no fewer than five of Stuff's own travel journalists picked their choice of snack for readers last Monday. Meanwhile, over at the spin-off, Anna Rafati Connell reckoned that in-flight snacks, like the Great Air New Zealand snack-off, were basically just PR themselves. It's to make us feel like we're getting our money's worth on a $400 flight to a destination that's otherwise difficult to reach affordably and efficiently by any other means of transport. And responding to Air New Zealand's claim that sustainably packed snacks would get extra brownie points, Anna Rafferty Connell said single-serve tiny snacks are always going to generate waste as well as expense, and on flights as short as New Zealand ones, attendants have barely cleared away the rubbish from the snacks before they're back again, handing out the end-of-flight lollies. But these, Anna Rafferty Connell reckoned, had a real purpose. Sucking them is meant to help relieve pressure on the ears as the plane descends. It's science, which is why you should take five. And that issue had already been addressed last Christmas on RNZ's Checkpoint, it turns out, by Lisa Owen. This time with the airline's top gun, Chief Executive Greg Foran. What's the upper limit for lollies from the basket? I think three is fair. However, when Stuff opened up one of its Yeah, Nah readers polls last Monday, about half of 6,000 respondents questioned whether the snacks are needed at all. One of them said, We don't need them. Use the cost savings to cut ticket prices. So, a bit like the not-quite-imminent-after-all prospect of pizza by drone, swapping single plastic-swaddled snacks in flight got the media going much more, it seems, than their punters. Well, that's all we have for you on the media this weekend, but we'll be back again with more on the media after the 10pm news next Wednesday on RNZ National during nights with Midweek Media Watch, and then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next Sunday here on RNZ National.